Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives and play the very best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Tom? Christopher, I have a question for you. Yeah? What, and this is going to be a tough one, what is your favorite cover version ever? Oh. <laughs> okay, I know one, but I, I'm going to give you one that's uh, more recent. Okay. I, and this is, I'm going to be completely open about this. This is my friend Mark Jordan's cover of Walk on the Wild Side, the Lou Reed classic. You know what? We've played a segment of that on this show. It is so cool. It is cool. And it's the episode that has Mark Jordan and I think Steely Dan on it. Because we combined those two artists right. together because he had worked with some of the members of Steely Dan for his his seventies kind of boss gags period as he calls it. Right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it is good. It's very good. Yeah. Any any others? How about respect? Aretha Franklin, which yeah. m- most people don't realize is a cover. Yes, exactly. She totally changed that song. Otis Redding. Otis Redding originally recorded it, and it's a completely different sound. And it was Aretha and her sisters who helped rearrange that song including the Sockatoomies and the just a little bit like they they helped re re rearrange <laughs> <laughs> that's great what about you i've been thinking a lot about this yeah, because you had a chance to <laughs> that's right because i knew i was going to ask this so i had a chance to uh, you know i think maybe my best cover version is brand new cadillac by the clash from london calling oh right and my favorite part is because I'm a 14-year-old boy, uh, is the part where he swears because it's so powerful, but it's crazy. People who know the song will know that part, but when he just lets it out, it's such a great cover version. Well, who's the original by? Um, It's a guy named Vince Taylor, and and it came out in 1959. So the Clash cover it and just raise it to punk heaven. Like, it's so good. (laughs) Right. But on the flip side of the coin, another one of my favorite cover versions is... The complete opposite. It's by The Carpenters. Oh. It's Superstar, a Leon Russell song, and I am not a big fan of The Carpenters, but I absolutely love that song, Superstar. I thought you were going to say, um, <clears throat> was it Ticket to Ride that they did the slow version of? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that one. Okay, well, mo- moving right along, anything sure. else? Yes, well, for something a little more contemporary, uh, Take Care by Drake and Rihanna, right. and that is a cover of a song originally written by Brooke Benton, believe it or not, oh. and the first hit version of it was by Bobby Bland, and it sounds completely different. I'll Take Care no of doubt. You. Drake and his producer kind of rejigged the song, including a sample from a producer named Jamie XX, and created this, what I think is this modern pop masterpiece, Take Care, by Drake and Rihanna. And now I want to hear the original Okay, Christopher, let's get started. First of all, a brand new interview with the great Randy Bachman as he talks about the new Bachman Cummings collection, which features the greatest hits of the Guess Who, BTO, and Burton Cummings. And Randy is an incredible storyteller, and I'm dying to ask him about the day his own father called the cops on him. This is a great story. And finally, his tumultuous relationship with Burton Cummings. Plus, we have the wonderful Neil Finn from a 1986 chat talking about the earliest days of Crowded House and the breakup of Split Ends. Neil, as always, is very candid and entertaining in this chat. And finally, a band that doesn't get enough respect, Cool and the Gang. In an interview we did in the mid-80s, they talk about their incredible success and why they ended up on the Band-Aid song, Do They Know It's Christmas? Great show ahead. First, let's crank it up with Randy Bachman. Mm-hmm. 
the amazing guitar work of Randy Bachman with the Guess Who and No Time from 1969, a song he co-wrote with Burton Cummings. And Randy is here right now to chat about the new box set called Bachman Cummings' The Collection, which features five Guess Who albums plus songs from Bachman Turner Overdrive and Burton Cummings as a solo artist. It's seven albums or CDs, and I got the seven albums on vinyl, so I'm so excited about that. And Randy, you must be excited to promote something kind of new. Uh, it's quite a celebration. He and I played a gig in Winnipeg just a month ago for Winnipeg's 150th and Manitoba's 150th birthday or anniversary. And our set list was pretty amazing. It was 28 or 30 hit songs, which are pretty much all on that box set. Yeah. And we didn't know, Burton's like my bicycle and I'm like his bicycle. You know the expression? It's like riding a bike. Yes. We got together for rehearsal I was like, so what do we do? We've been playing these for years. He said, let's just do the set list. We worked on a set list ahead of time. So we started out with No Sugar, New Mother, which is each of us writing and singing two songs together. That's awesome. And we ran through the whole set and we went, wow. Okay, that's the set. And then we rehearsed <laughs> on a couple of days. We did the show. But when it was all done, and I had gotten one of these there to look at. Yeah. Quite an amazing thing to look at. The impressive amount of songs that everybody knows. Yeah. I thought, you know, when I left in 1970, this kid did okay without me. <laughs> and BTW, by the way, I did okay without him. That's exactly both like, right. Both like forces of music together are alone, but together there is a magic that's hard to find anywhere else. It's amazing. So what I want to do is I want to play a clip for you right now, and it's you talking about how you had to sustain your own self-confidence after leaving the Guess Who and how that felt to you, okay? I'm a very confident person, and part of being confident is when you make a decision, stick with it. That I never really looked back after I left the Guess Who, although I had a couple of really tough years. For sure, for I sure. just kept, you know, we clawed our way up and clawed and clawed, and all of a sudden you can stand up and nobody's pushing you down anymore and you're standing up with the rest and all of a sudden you're standing taller. So what do you think of that? First of all, that's you more than 45 years ago. What's it like to hear yourself back then? And what are your thoughts about what you said and that self-confidence and how you needed it, especially during the downtime and the dark times? Well, in 1970, after the Guess Who, I left the Guess Who with the summer, maybe it was June or July. I'm back in Winnipeg. Neil, Neil is there visiting his mother. Right, your buddy Neil Young. We meet downtown, we go to a park, we're sitting in the park. He's saying, Buffalo Springfield broke up, and I'm going, yeah, they were my favorite band, you and Stephen Still, Richie. It was incredible. What are you going to do? He said, I don't know. Maybe I'll do a solo thing. What are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm scared. He said, you know what? A door has closed. Let's open the damn door. Mm -hmm. No matter how far away the next door is, let's run there. Let's just be fierce and fearless yeah and run in the dark towards the door and open it we don't know what's there but let's get there faster let's not take so long do what you want to do i said well i can't compete with the wonderful voice of burton cummings i can't compete with the momentum of the guess who going from million seller to two million seller to three million seller i'll just start from scratch and i'll do some country rock he said great that's what i'm going to do he said, by the way, you get a tape, let me know. And he got me a deal with Warner Brothers Records, 
with Mo Austin. That became Brave Belt 1 and Brave Belt 2. Right. Chad Allen quit in the middle of Brave Belt 2. I flew to L.A. to tell them personally, the lead singer has gone. <laughs> wow. They said, what? <laughs> you have a replacement? And I said, yeah. His name is Fred Turner. I haven't spoken. I hadn't spoken to Fred in 10 bloody years. <laughs> they said, can we put his name on the contract? I said, sure. Gary finds Fred. He's in Regina playing a wedding with a polka band called the D-Drifters Five. And so Fred gets on the phone. This is late at night. Fred, do you want to be in the band? We've got part of the album done. You can write part. I'll write part with you. We'll integrate your voice with mine and Chad's. No one will know the difference. He said, can I do my own songs today? He said, I'm in. So I put his name on the contract. Warner Brothers let us go after that. Really? After 26 refusals on Brave Belt 3, I get a phone call from Charlie Fash at Mercury Records in Chicago, and he wants to sign the band. He says, but change your name. Yeah. Brave Belt means nothing to anybody. Name recognition. Put Bachman in there somewhere. Radio guys know who wrote the songs. I said, well, there's a couple of Bachmans in the band. I'll just put Bachman Turner. People think it's Seals and Crofts or Brewer and Shipley. They think it's two guys with mandolins singing <laughs> folk music. We get booked in, in coffee clubs, which basically, as you know, would hold 85 people. Right. Sipping little cappuccinos or tea. We show up with Fred Turner, who's got a Harley Davidson voice, a Mack truck voice. We're doing Creedence covers, writing our own songs now to fit Fred's voice and blowing the coffee cups off the table. We're at a truck stop in Windsor, Detroit, one side of the border. I go to pay my bill. There's a magazine there called Overdrive. It's a trucker's magazine. I open it up. There's a centerfold like a Playboy. Instead of a girl, it's the inside of a guy's truck. It's a leopard skin ceiling. It's a cassette player. It's a little holder for a book. I'm going, these guys read books. It's the thing that holds a book. And he's driving a semi. So when I call Charlie Faction next morning, he said, you wanted a name to show that we're not a duo? And you wanted a name with my name in it? How about Bachman Turner Overdrive? He goes, oh, man, that's incredible. Yeah. It's way too long. <laughs> okay, so that must be where BTO comes from, and he must have loved that, right? You're like CTA. You're like CSN. That's great. You've got a logo of BTO, and you've got the full name Bachman Turner Overdrive. That's incredible. So I just kept going. Trying and failing is wonderful. Failing to try is idiotic because if you say, I can't win the race, you never enter the race. Absolutely. So I want to go back to those early days with uh, you and Burton writing together. You guys got together every Saturday morning and wrote for a couple of hours. And you guys would, you know, hash out songs. But if something didn't work, you would kind of go, okay, that's not quite working. Let's throw that away. Do you ever wish you could go back and find some of those song fragments, song scraps, thrown away songs to see what's there? Like you probably didn't keep them and they're gone. They are gone. And good riddance. <laughs> they served an incredible purpose. Right. I would bring Burton a song. And I was not a lyricist at that time or a poet. He kind of was. He was like a pseudo Jim Morrison kind of thing. He would say, your, your, your music's great, because I always do good music, chords and riffs. You don't have a good storyline. Your hook is amazing. It's great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Play me one of yours. He played me one of his. I go, your verses are amazing. They tell a story. Your hook falls apart. It doesn't go anywhere. 
Let's change the key. Let's put that with this. Change the key, play it. Great. Now we need a middle eight or a little bridge in the middle. Bam, that's a song. So those throwaway parts were a little, we'd like to introduce you to this monster course, and we'd like to introduce you, introduce you to this monster hook, and we're leaving your life. Thanks a lot for the introduction. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Out of those, we've got so many. We've got three or four albums worth of great songs, 40 or 50 incredible songs. Yeah. So they did yeah. serve their purpose. Okay, Randy, when we come back, I want to ask you about an incident that happened almost 60 years ago. You got into a bit of trouble with your dad because you kind of disappeared. Your father ended up calling the cops, but where you were says a lot about where you are now. So I can't wait to talk to you about this story. This is Famous Lost Words. We'll be right back with more from Randy Bachman. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Randy Backman as we talk about the new spectacular seven album or seven CD collection called the Backman Cummings Collection, which is a phenomenal compilation of the greatest songs of the Guess Who, Backman Turner Overdrive, and Burton Cummings Solo. I guarantee that you will know more than two dozen of these songs, and it's a great collection, and it's also a great Christmas gift. All right, Randy. So let's go back to the summer of 1964. You disappeared one day. You ended up in a movie theater and you stayed all day. But your dad didn't know that and he called the cops. Is this story true and what movie was it? Yes, it's true. <laughs> the movie was Hard Day's Night. Ugh. It's opening in Winnipeg at noon. <laughs> And I love the movie so much. It was a template of how to be a rock band. It also was a template of how to be a fan. It taught the girls how to scream. Basically, it was a brilliant <laughs> propagandist movie from Brian Epstein and the Beatles on, this is us. This is how you react to us in our music. You scream your bloody heads off. You buy our <laughs> records. You chase us everywhere. I sat through the movie, I don't know how many times, from noon to midnight at 11.30 when the lights came on. There's a tap on my shoulder. It's my father and two of the police. <laughs> We've been searching for you. I said to my dad, you know where I was coming. I told you I was going to see Hard Day's Night. <laughs> Randy, one of the songs that Burton did not love while you were in the Guess Who was called White Collar Worker, which eventually became Taking Care of Business with BTO. Tell the story behind that song and how it was inspired by a Beatles hit. This is an exact copy of Paperback Writer. Right. <laughs> Later on, I rewrote that myself on stage in a North Vancouver nightclub when I had to sing because Fred Turner had lost his voice. And driving to the gig that night, Daryl Burlingham, who Burton went to school with, Daryl B on Fox Radio, we're taking care of business. And I go, oh, wow, what a song title. And it goes to a little shelf next to my heart on a, of a few, labeled a few of my favorite things, where the lyrics are for White Collar Worker. They've been there for like seven years. That's great. And on stage that night, wondering... What am I going to do next? The people are up dancing. It's the last set on a Saturday night. I turn around and say to the band, three chords, follow me. When I get to the hook, sing it. I start, but I'm done. I start white collar work, white collar worker. I get to the hook instead of singing that, I sing taking care of business. It's smooth. It's a transition. 
that's unnoticeable. It fits perfectly. Yeah. I'll get to the chorus the next time. It's the second time they've heard it. They sing it. The audience <laughs> sing it. And amazingly, out of the blue, I answer every day, every way. It's all mine and working overtime. Oh, my God. This right. is like when American Woman was sent to me on stage and I yelled to Burton, sing anything, and he sang out, yes. American Woman, stay away from me. The gift of God has said, you two poor goons have been <laughs> trying long enough to write a hit song. And there it is. That's great. You know, there's a couple moments. There's a, there's a moment in around 1969-1970 where in the space of 10 months, the guess who released three great albums, okay? We Feel Soul, Canned Wheat, American Woman. And then there's also, in the early 70s, BTO has three albums on the charts at the same time. You must have been just shocked when, you, when that happened a second time. It must have been so gratifying for you. I saved a page. I think it's from Billboard. It might be from Cashbox. Right. Where Fragile was number one. <laughs> you Ain't Seen Nothing Yet was number one. Take Care of Business was 18. BTO 2 was like 22 or something. Wow. Let It Ride was 48 or something. <laughs> and BTO 1 with Blue Collar on it was... So we had three albums and three singles in the top 50 besides the number one album and single. Mm-hmm. And I went, wow, this is amazing. But that year and the year before, we had been on the road over 300 days a year. My marriage fell apart. Everything at home fell apart. But I was determined to make it. So, Randy, um, I had a moment with Burton last year. It was one of those moments. It was a Burton moment. And I mean that with all affection. But... I made the mistake, the terrible mistake, of bringing up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to him (laughs) and the guess who. And that conversation did not go well at all, although we did finish the interview and it was fantastic and he was great. But I stand by the argument that the guess who should be there, the original lineup of the guess who. What are your thoughts about that? Burton and I gave up on that with a shovel for decades by Jan Wenner and the people who are the nominating committee. And it gets to the point where you don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. As much as I love Leonard Cohen, should he be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Has he ever rocked his ba- brains out? No. Or a band who had two hit records. Jan Weiner and his guys never liked us. They, we never got a good Ro- Rolling Stone review or write-up. Cameron Crowe did a small one in 1970. Nothing ever since. So you get a guy like Neil Young, who's a good friend of mine. He's in there three times <laughs> because Jan Weiner likes him. I don't yeah. care anymore. If we yeah. got to go, I wouldn't want to go. I get that. I get your anger. I get the disrespect. But as a fan, I know you guys belong there. And as a fan, I would really like to see it. So anyway, uh, well, thank you for answering the question. And thanks for not berating me. <laughs> okay, so you and Burton have a kind of an interesting and complicated relationship. But obviously, the connection is also incredibly strong. How would you describe your relationship now and, and the connection that you have? It's been the same for 40 years, 50 years. I think he's one of the greatest voices in rock and roll. He was a great guy to write songs with. Mm-hmm. He's tough to get along with. He's an only child, kind of a spoilt only child. <laughs> and I'm from a family of four boys, and I was the oldest and taught to be fair with everybody. I also had eight children of my own, which makes you quite selfless as a person when you have one child, never mind eight 
we just have different lifestyles. Way back then, our lifestyle was different. He was into drinking and drugs, mm-hmm. and I wasn't. Yeah. And yeah. that's basically why I left the band. It was just like smashing your heads together every single night, even though the music was there. It's like a couple that's great in bed, but they don't get along out of bed, and they break up. We get together like we did in Winnipeg. It is a magical moment on stage. It's two hours of magic. And then when it's done, well, that's my fix for now. The next fix is in July. We'll be at the amphitheater in Toronto, Molson's Amphitheater, whatever it's called now. We'll have our moment on stage there again. Thank you so much, Randy Bachman, as we celebrate the release of Bachman Cummings, the collection. Such a wonderful compilation of the greatest music of the Guess Who, Bachman Turner Overdrive, and Burton Cummings solo. And one of my favorite parts of the liner notes is when each of you comment on your favorite song by the other person. So Burton chose his favorite Randy Bachman songs, Undone, Looking Out for Number One, Taking Care of Business, and No Time which were written by you. You chose the Burton songs, My Own Way to Rock, Share the Land, and I'm Scared. It's just great. It's such a wonderful, loving tribute to you guys. And as a fan of both of you together and each of you separately, it was a real honor to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us, Randy Bachman, on Famous Lost Words. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Still more to come on Famous Lost Words. That's right. We have an extremely entertaining chat with Neil Finn of Crowded House and Split Ends. And we talk about which of Neil's songs is now regularly performed by Fleetwood Mac. That's up next. This is Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Don't Dream It's Over, Crowded House from 1986. Boy, that song still sounds great, doesn't it, Tom? Oh, it sure does. It's got such a beautiful hook. Like, when that first came out, everybody's kind of going, like, what is that? Who is that? That is so beautifully hooky. And then, of course, you find out it's Neil Finn, and you find out it's the same guy that was in Split Ends, and it makes sense. It's a it's a nice progression from Split Ends, and it's just fantastic. And they're still doing it, only now yeah. as part of Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yeah, no, they did it in the, they did it in Fleetwood Mac, and it's and here having Stevie Nicks singing on it. Well, that sounded okay. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's what yeah. you mean. Sorry, I didn't really know what you meant when you said they're still doing it. I thought you meant Crowded House, and then of course, of course, Neil Finn is in Fleetwood Mac, and that would be unusual to hear him do that song in Fleetwood Mac with Stevie singing. That's wild. Yeah, and uh, Mick Fleetwood sort of teased him up in a really, really positive way too. It's great. Yeah. In this interview with Neil Finn at the start of the band Crowded House, the interviewer begins by saying he won't get into too much detail on the breakup of Split Ends, but then proceeds to do a forensic examination of the demise of that band. <laughs> but no wonder it's a good story, underpinned by family drama, and both bands are worth talking about, right? Neil Finn is a dream interview. He's candid, eh, times he's wacky but always completely present no phoning it in for neil so for the crowded house fans and i know they are legion this is a oh, yeah. gold mine of detail about the formation of a truly great band 
Here we start with the story of the late, great Split Ends. I want to go back just a, a bit to the end of Split Ends, and I, I don't want to get into a big, long explanation as to what happened there, but if you can give us oh. a, a brief summary of the demise and, and yeah. how long ago it happened. 84, was that the last 84 year? 84 was the last year of Split Ends. Yeah, there was a big gap there, I think, and it was unfortunate because we, we had such a good contact with Canada, particularly for about three years, and then all of a sudden people probably didn't hear anything of us over here. Well, during that time, Tim went off and, and, and did a solo album to start off with. And, Escapade? Yeah, mm-hmm. which we, and then after that, we came back to do a, um, another Split Ends album, probably a little less united than we had been up to that point. Um, not that there was any obvious um, problems, except when we got in the studio, we found that we had different ideas as far as what we should be doing musically. Hence the album Conflicting Emotions, which I think did get released here, but probably didn't do very much. Um, with an album title like that, it kind of puts you on a... A disadvantage to start off with, but mm-hmm. um, after that album, I think we all kind of evaluated what you know the long career of Split Ends and, and wondered whether we were going to be getting ourselves into a rut if we continued. There is a, there was an album that came out without Tim yeah. called See Around. Yeah, I didn't actually think it was released here, but perhaps it made its way. Over it did, yeah, later, and, much later yeah. than when it was recorded. Mm. But what was the situation on that? Was that sort of a last ditch attempt to? to try and put some spark back into the band or was it no, a really. farewell to the it, fans? It was a farewell because we had already decided to break up and we thought we, we would go in and make a, a, a farewell EP because we had been working on some songs and it would have been dissatisfying to just can them mm-hmm. and uh, so we went and what started, what started out as an EP grew in the space of two weeks to an album which we recorded very quickly and it was, a, it was probably the most fun we'd had recording ironically enough as we were breaking up it was the most fun we'd had for years recording and I think it's a good album uh, when I listen back to it I think the most interesting part of that clip was the fact that once they had decided to break split ends up, they ended up having more fun. Once the pressure goes away, it becomes enjoyable again. I guess there's, I suppose there's a valuable lesson to be learned there. Well, and subsequently, you know, Neil and Tim Finn did some some albums together uh, under the name of Finn. And I believe... Um, Tim actually went so far as to join Crowded House for a short time yes. period, right? Yeah, he did. It's all in the family, right? Here, Neil talks about the formation of Crowded House. Now, let's talk about Crowded House. That's okay. the reason you're here. Yep. This is a, a self-titled album. The album's called Crowded House. The band is called Crowded House. Yeah. Give us a, a detail on the lineup. The band was originally put together um, with me and Paul Hester. Paul Hester was the last drummer Split Ends ever had, and he never actually made it to Canada. He joined shortly after our last Canadian tour. And he was great, and he's about the same age as me, and we... We just hit it off straight away when he joined the band and we, we decided when Split Ends broke up that we would get another band together and we launched into it really straight away after the last Split Ends shows and immediately made demos of some new songs that we had um, and auditioned people and we found in the, in the process we found Nick Seymour who actually um, initially wormed his way into the band by, by, by sort of coming at me when I was... Loaded on tequila. Totally tequila loaded, yes. yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> Managed, he got himself an audition and, and he was great so I mean the audition spoke for itself but uh, his methods w- were very successful anyway mm-hmm. and uh, so we had the core of the band pretty very quickly really and the demos that we made we took overseas and tried to figure out who was the most interested and we found the most enthusiasm came from Capitol Records in, L- in LA so during the course of 85 we put, the re- put a record deal together with them and did a tour um, in Australia, um, as much to fill in time and to keep us o- occupied, as, and also to, to, to road work, test. Yeah, the, work the, out new material, yeah. And to see whether we really were a band or whether it was just an illusion we we were all suffering under. Mm-hmm. And that worked out great, and, and the, the deal came together, and we made a few more demos, and the songs built up through the year, and eventually we got to meet Mitchell Froome, who was kind of the last piece in the puzzle. 
Um, and again, we just hit it off straight away with him. Well, the best thing about the production style that, that he has done with this album and other albums is the fact that the, st- the songs are basically left alone without a lot of production techniques and synthesizers and stuff. So the songs must be strong. They have to stand up for themselves or the album just isn't going to make it. Well, yeah, that, that was the principle we worked under and I th- we worked hard for that. It, it, and I think at the end of the day, um, it sounds like a band playing in a studio, which is, it may sound like a simple thing, but sometimes very hard to achieve. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really happy with the results. But it just again, it's just the beginning f- of a new band. I, I you know, feel like we're kind of working towards having a sound of our own and, and hopefully one day we'll be a great band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there any reason at all why Crowded House is a three-piece rather than a four- or a five-member band? Well, no, and in actual fact, it's quite possible that um, if the right guy comes along, we could extend ourselves to four pieces. We will need to be four-piece for the road because we've got keyboards that are that Mitchell played on the record that we will need to have there. But um, we've been doing recently doing some gigs just with acoustic bass and Paul just playing a snare drum standing up, and uh, it's it's just great how the songs work in that context and how, how much life you can you can bring to them like that. So... I'm 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 really attracted to a small band at, at this stage. Having been in a six-piece band where everybody had an equal say and where there was a compulsion to use everybody on every track, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the space that three three people can provide. Right. And you really, I mean, you really work hard in a three-piece. You know, there's you can't there's no slouches in a three-piece. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to be a strong player. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful interview from the earliest days of Crowded House, and it's so interesting when you think about how the band is about to take off. With songs like Don't Dream It's Over, Something So Strong, and then Better Be Home Soon, Fall At Your Feet, Weather With You, Distant Sun, they had about seven very good years on the charts. And of course, they still exist today. Brother Tim, as you said, is sometimes in the group, and Neil's son Liam as well. And Christopher, you know Neil a bit, and you've interviewed him in the past. And you, by the way, you can hear that interview in episode 304, and it is a very popular episode. And you've even played songs on stage with him. That's so wild. <laughs> it was wild and unexpected, I must say. That night at, uh, at Largo, when I got up on stage with, with Mike Myers and, and with Neil's band, uh, and we did BBC from Austin Powers, Right. Um, we were chatting backstage, and I said, I don't know if you remember me from much music. And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, yeah, because I said, you guys were like, the house band there we had you in so many times and and people just loved it every time you came and he said yeah we had a a super love relationship with much in those days and he said and i remember somebody from the station sent us a compilation of all the goofy interviews that we did and we were watching it on the um the tour bus and everybody was laughing and just thinking how funny they were and he said but then there was a moment all of a sudden when it just became too much and we just couldn't look at it anymore <laughs> it's, like, it's funny but oh no it's not funny anymore so <laughs> all right let's keep going with this interview with neil finn of crowded house from 1986 here's what life was like in a truly crowded house in the hollywood hills uh, it has a very acoustic sound to it, the album, and yet there's some rough edges on it that give it an energy, because most acoustic albums, if they're just left to be acoustic, they're going to sound like an Arlo Guthrie or a Pete yeah. Seeger album or something. But there's a, an amazing amount of energy on here for, the, for yeah. the type of album that it is. I think that, that was partly as a result of being in, in a foreign environment in L.A., and, and it was a pretty mad kind of time when I think back on it. And really, we poured ourselves into the record because that was one of the only familiar things we had. That, you know, we knew the songs, and we, uh, you know, I do think we got more impassioned performances, possibly as a result of being in in L.A. Mm-hmm. 
Was it the first time you've recorded in LA? The first time I've recorded in America, yeah. Um, the main reason we, ch- we chose to do it was to get to know the record company and to have, for have, to have them get to know us. Tell me a little about where you were situated there as far as uh, the record, not the recording, but where you were staying and, and what yeah. you were doing while you weren't recording. Well, um, that was really the name of the band sums that up. We were living in a house uh, in Hollywood overlooking a, um, the Magic Castle in a car park where we used to wake up, wake up regularly with shotgun exchanges and the sound of the police helicopter circling overhead. So not only was it kind of a desperate, immediate environment, we got, we had a, I'd, I'd get back from the studio and find people sort of surfing down the stairs on cardboard, um, sheets of cardboard and <laughs> incredible parties and, and actions. And Nick Seymour, our bass player, is one of the world's most gregarious gentlemen and he would go out to a club uh, nights when he wasn't working and he'd bring he'd bring home regularly four or five new people every night to sort mm-hmm. of occupy the lounge room and uh, sometimes they stayed. <laughs> so this was like a boarding house? What was the situation? This it was, was a, a house that the, was a the studio house. put you in or Capital put you in? Or? It was a house that we rented from this very paranoid lady who who was she had this deco house and she had it all fitted out with all these deco ornaments and the doors out of the queen mary or something and and this 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 library which was all it was full of was was hollywood memorabilia she was really into hollywood the whole hollywood myth mm-hmm. which was a strange place to be and there was a huge life-size portrait of betty grable downstairs in paul's bedroom which he used to wake up to every morning <laughs> it had a kind of sinister overtone to it that's the wonderful Neil Finn of Crowded House in conversation with my former colleague Roger Bartell from 1986. And of course, Neil, as we said, is currently a member of Fleetwood Mac. And if you told me that would happen in 1986, I would have said there's a better chance of, I don't know, Axl Rose becoming the lead singer of ACDC. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget there are almost 100 episodes of Famous Lost Words available to binge on on the iHeartRadio app or any other podcast platform. Check out classic interviews with Tom Petty, Prince, Queen, Supertramp, Aretha Franklin, and many more. Up next, one of the biggest bands of the 80s, but one that doesn't get nearly the attention they deserve. We'll try to rectify that situation when Famous Lost Words returns. This is Famous Lost Words, heard in more than 100 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. From 1981, one of the biggest dance songs of all time, Celebration by Cool and the Gang. Tom, Robert Cool Bell has been there and recorded that for 57 years. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. Now, they've evolved musically, and they've taken advantage of opportunity, as Bell explains in this interview. The band formed in 1964, and they had some ups and downs over the next couple of decades, but they hit their peak with two million copies sold of Emergency in 1986, around the time of this interview. Um, 23 albums, a couple of Grammys, membership in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. High points in a remarkable career. Now, Cool and the Gang are still going at it, by the way, releasing their 25th album in 2021. Hmm. Here, Robert Bell talks about the very prolific Cool and the Gang. In terms of actual studio recording, this is uh, 23rd. That's almost a record a year. That's incredible. How do you do it? Well, <laughs> I mean, most people can't get one out, you know? To do, you know? No. But uh, I would say uh, 
Well, it was the evolution, though, of different types of, of sounds, though. In the beginning, it was basically instrumental, and then we started adding the little vocals and street-type vocals, and then we had female vocalists in the group for, for a few years. And then late 78 to 79, uh, James Taylor, who is now you know, the lead vocalist of the group. Not to be confused with? With the uh, other James Taylor. Do people ask you that often? Uh, sometimes, yeah. yeah. Uh, jokingly, you know. Yeah. Well, I was just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so uh, that has been, you know, a combination of things leading up, you know, to be able to record, what, 23 albums in the past 17 years. 1985 was a real big year. You had four top 40 singles. Now, Phil Collins, Madonna, and Wham were the only people to do that in 1985. That must be nice to be up there in the upper echelons there. Yes, after, what, uh, 22 years, we're getting there. We have arrived, huh? <laughs> You've always weathered all the changes, though, through the different phases, through the quote-unquote disco phase of the 70s, yeah. and... Uh, You've always seemed to move along with everything quite nicely, you know, putting in components of R&B and rock and roll and, and funk in there and always making it up to date. And even the older stuff is quite adaptable to today as well. Yeah, well, we have uh, remained uh, what, very open, you know, musically. Uh, growing up, I mean, we listened to just about everybody uh, from, what, Three Dog Night to uh, The Beatles, uh, even Stevie Wonder, you know. This is a mini tour that you're doing right now, right? Uh, yes. Kind of a strange time to juggle a tour in between uh, between recording sessions. You've got a new record it coming is. out. It is. What's uh, happening with the new album? Well, we're, we're about uh, pretty much to finish. Uh, the album will be out in August. Uh, it gives us a break, though, you know, to get away from the studio for a minute to come up and do, you know, a tour. Because it's always uh, what stimulating to see crowd reaction and gives you somewhat of an idea what you're recording in the studio, whether or not it's on track or not, too. Mm -hmm. You know, so it helps to me. So you're working out the new stuff now. Yeah. Shout out to my buddy Lee Ackley, who conducted this interview. Hey, Lee, thanks for your great work. The um, British Band-Aid recording was happening as it happens, just as the band arrived in the UK. You were the only North American act on the Band-Aid record. Right. How did that come about? Well, you know, we, we, we have been going in and out of England for years. Uh, and uh, upon arriving at the airport, uh, we were met by some of our record company reps, and they had mentioned to us that the next day they were recording a song for Ethiopia with Bob Geldof and asked us would we like to be uh, a part of it. And we said, yes, absolutely. I guess the, uh, what, the ironic thing about it is that we were thinking about doing something ourselves back in the States on our tour. Uh, we had thought about maybe collecting canned goods, something that Kenny Rogers was doing, uh, a few projects, and, and sending that over. But uh, it worked, actually. It was just in thought, brought about the, you know, the manifestation of Band-Aid. That gets me onto a subject of, musically, you have such a very positive image, and lifestyle, in other words, is very positive. I mean, it goes beyond stage and song. You talk about various humanitarian causes that you've been included in over the years, but Big Brothers, Big Sisters down in the States. Right. Also the United Negro College Fund, the New York State Seatbelt Safety Campaign, Youth Education Programs. You guys really care. And that's great. That's yeah. gratifying. Well, you know, uh, it is. it has been said that uh, too much is given, much is uh, expected of. And uh, being blessed to be talented and, uh, and to uh, reap the rewards from being in the music industry, uh, you have to give something back, you know, it's, it's, it's about charity, you know, um, looking at a, a different causes uh, that are very important that you should uh, address yourself to. Mm -hmm. 
massive hit by Cool and the Gang, Cherish, from 1985. That song, by the way, would become the most popular song on the adult contemporary charts in the 1980s, number one. I didn't know that. Uh, neither did I until I looked all this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> Here, Bell goes back to the origins of the band. Let's talk about New York City because you used to hang around there. Well, you've, uh, you're from Jersey, right? From Jersey, yes. And you used to hang around in Greenwich Village back in 1964 and 1965 before you formed your first band called the Jazzy Axe. Right. In those days, Jimi Hendrix was still undiscovered and playing Cafe Wah. Guys like Richard Pryor were hanging around at that time. Um, did you have any insight as to how far these guys would take things? Well, Were you that close to it? Well, not at the time. Uh, you're talking about we were in grammar school and wow. we would just go over to Cafe Wa in the village and play for sandwiches. They, they would have like a showcase on Sundays uh-huh. and uh, the new talent, they would, you know, serve you some potato chips and a tuna fish sandwich <laughs> or something. You know. But it was just really a, a growing experience for us. Uh, I mean, we would see like Pryor and Cosby coming through, but didn't really lock as to, you know, to have impact until a little later. So, oh, wow, that's the Cosby or the Pryor that was, you know, at Cafe Wa. You know? I see, I see. So when's the new album going to be coming out? Uh, August. Hopefully. Hey, what's it going to be called? We don't have a title yet. You have the title some. is on its way, though. It'll be there in about another week. <laughs> you have some pretty big shoes to fill to follow up emergency. Do you feel any pressures? Do you just do what you do? No, we feel we always, there's always the pressure. Robert Cool Bell, my guest today. Thank you for coming in. Okay, thank you. There you go. 1986 chat with Cool and the Gang, preceded by Crowded House, and we started the show with Randy Bachman. That was a lot of fun. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Our show was co-written by myself, Christopher Ward, and my co-host, Tom Jokic. Executive producer, Sarah Cummings. We're heard in more than 100 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. Check us out on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.